Hey everybody, this is Charles Hayne. Welcome to the No Film School podcast for COVID Week 10. This is also day 69 of the New York shutdown. Otherwise known in our normal old date calendar, the week of May 22nd, 2020, here at the No Film School podcast. I'm here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. And writers for No Film School, Joe Light. Hi. And Michelle De La Tour. Hey, everyone. And this week, we are going to be talking about the untimely passing of a beloved indie cinema icon, Lynn Shelton. We're going to be talking about the amazing cinematic implications of the new Unreal Engine 5. We're going to be talking about ProRes Raw finally coming to premiere. All that and some deep cuts this week on the No Film School podcast. Our top story this week, yeah, most of you have probably read a little bit about it, but we wanted to talk a little bit more about it here. The untimely passing at 54 years old of Lynn Shelton. Other people can say a lot. I actually have never worked with her, but I have many friends who have. And she is one of those people that just had the most stellar of reputations. I can't tell you the number of times that I've been like talking to friends on various productions. And they were like, you should check out Lynn Shelton's episode. She was such a sweetheart to work with on that show. And she was the one who really got the tone. And she was the one that... Her episodes are the great ones of that season. So just such an amazing, like in an industry in which so many people are successful and you hear all of these stories about them being terrible people, like one of the ones that you just heard nothing but glowing uh, things about. And then I'll let other people cover who who know her work better than I do uh, jump in. Yeah. Um, I'll just say real quick, I have I have the same exact I've had the same exact experience. The people, I have no personal experience with Lynn, but she knew a lot of people I know. She worked with a lot of people I've worked with and known. And the outpouring of just how tragic it is, but also how beloved she was and how fun to work with she was and how much of a positive influence she had. Um, Yeah, it's tragic, obviously, but um, she was a really valuable collaborator. And I think the people who worked with her felt really strongly about her. And she was really good. That's the other thing. Like, I mean, the stuff she did was interesting. And she was a really important voice in independent filmmaking. Um, and I think we were not even at the point where we were seeing the best stuff she was going to do. Because I feel like she was on the rise, really. But I definitely want Joe to talk about it because Joe interviewed her for us back at South by Southwest. And that's why I immediately asked Joe when I heard the news, I I asked her if she could write about it on no film school because I remember this. So I'll hand it off to you. Yeah. I think my initial experience is a lot like both of yours. I just, I have a lot of friends that had worked with her. I had people say that she was so kind and outgoing with her time. Like she would introduce you to people or she would watch cuts of your movies or she would, you know, help with editing. So I think she was always just a really kind of a giving filmmaker and a, and a person who really cared about the craft and cared about helping others kind of find their way into, to the world too. Um, so for that reason, I was kind of going into South by, I was thinking that she would be kind of a quote unquote, like big fish. I don't know. Like I went into it kind of thinking, well, I don't know if I'll even be able to get an interview with her because she's someone I respect so much. And she's such a, such a well-known filmmaker, especially in the indie space. Um, so when she agreed to sit down, I was just, I was very excited and very nervous. I was just really surprised to find her, um, really down to earth, really, um, 
easygoing. She was just, I, I went back and actually listened to our interview today just because I wanted to kind of remember what that, what that interaction was like. And we just, we were just very, it was a very conversational interview. She laughed a lot. She was very, she was very easy with her laugh. Um, very appreciative. Cause I was just, I spent most of the interview just gushing about the movie. <laughs> I was sort of trust sort of trust was the movie that we were looking at and it was my favorite I think of South by that year it's just a really good film I was pretty emotional about it I remember I watched it really late the night before I got I got the screener and I was just overwhelmed I remember you were excited about trying you were excited about trying to get her you had it out late it was like a wish list and we were excited that you did and then I remember the day you went to go do the interview and you were talking about it. And then when you came back and you said it went really well. And the other funny thing is I saw them, she and Marin, Mark Marin, were getting on the, were on the same flight I was on out of L.A. So I saw them in the airport at the gate before we got there. And I was like, oh, my God, that's like there was, a, you know, I, I, there was a little bit of a like, that's a cool couple of people to see on your way to South by Southwest. It was just exciting. We should talk a little bit quickly about her resume, because I think we've jumped into talking about her, the person, without talking about the films she's made and the work she's done, specifically for people who might not be familiar, because she didn't really, she did a lot of things that entered the mainstream, but she wasn't a voice in the mainstream. She was a bigger voice in the um, indie scene. And it was kind of like she was, it was breaking through. But I wanted to bring up, like, she directed episodes of a lot of television shows everyone's seen. I think she directed a really strong episode of Mad Men, and a lot of people don't even know which one. Um, I didn't know until I looked back. I was like, wait, which one did she do? Um, she did an episode in season four where actually a lot is going on. It's about, the, the, I don't want to do spoilers. Should I just do spoilers? There's a lot of really heavy Mad topics. Mad Men has been out for so long that I don't know if Yeah, you're right. Yeah, it. right. Okay, we can do spoilers. So I think it's, it's important like, context actually, the 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 why they brought her like the episode they brought her in to do. So I think it's fair and safe. Yeah, I she did an episode where Joan went to get an abortion. Lane was hit by his father, uh partly for having an interracial relationship. Don was being investigated by the FBI and he had to, um, the, Pete had to save him essentially who had been, Pete had been his nemesis and Roger, um, who's also involved in the abortion storyline lost the biggest client. It was a really big episode. And when I was reading the recap of it, I thought about it. It all came back to me. I love the show. It's an amazing show if you haven't seen it, but, um, it all came back to me that it was just a really important piece of this, you know, multi-season arc, but all these really intense, dark things were happening in the course of this one episode. And I feel like a lot of the topics she handled really well. That was kind of one of the hallmarks of the show, but I think in less capable hands, things could have felt all those things that are so important, difficult, challenging could have gone poorly. So I wanted to bring that up because I think sometimes we don't we, you know, she's an auteur in her own right. I think she did. She she has a mumblecore background, and I think she did a lot of improvisation work. And there's a lot of things about her filmmaking to talk about. But being a director who works on big TV shows and can deliver a great episode on one of those shows, especially one like that, I think is really impressive and worth sort of mentioning. 
I was going to follow that up with an episode of Glow. There was a episode of Glow, the last episode of season three, which somehow at the time I thought redeemed its entire season. And I said, who did that? Like who came in and somehow tied together all of the threads in a way that made sense and that set you up for success in the next season potentially? And it was Lynn. And so now I know the answer to my question of who came in to kind of not save the day because Glow didn't really need saving, but to handle it with care in a 41-minute span and came in, did the job, and and left an impact. And I I looked back. As soon as I saw that, I said, I know exactly which one she did, right? <laughs> I know exactly. I can pinpoint it because I could tell which one she had tackled. And I think she has that kind of had that kind of an impact on TV. I think she was such a great director because she had that kind of delicate touch where she could – she worked in comedy a lot, but a lot of her comedies are about – how sloppy we are as human beings or how horrible relationships can be. So I think she had that that really unique balance of, you know, handling human drama, but also incorporating the comedy in really realistic ways. And I think that's why she was able to go back and forth so easily. She was just so she was so good at characters and she was so good at making sure that everyone was comfortable and and knew what they were supposed to do on set. I know I know that we talked about in our interview um, how she started as an actor, and that was really important for her to kind of know what that experience was and know how to foster those kind of environments on sets for, for the people that she was working with. She came from understanding that side of things, but she also was really good at the human element within these stories. And I just think you can't overstate how much directing an episode of an established show that having an impact through that and also not rewriting how the show is done. I mean, they're not going to let you do that anyway, but like be doing a good job of, of, of delivering and not like altering the (laughs) deviating from the course, I guess I would say like, but still being memorable because when I think of the episodes she's done of TV shows, like, the ones I mentioned, the one I mentioned, the one Michelle mentions, I think she managed to weave them to be effective, but weave them into the bigger thing and in a, in a way that works. Um, but yeah, she has, uh, she was a huge voice and, and it's a big loss. Joe, I'm hoping to ask a question of you, which is what do you think is Lynn's impact on female filmmakers and particularly those who are new or thinking about jumping into the craft? Um, well, I, I, again, I listened to the interview again, and I remember asking her this question. I don't think I pulled it for our interview, but I did ask her kind of, she kind of did start a little bit in a roundabout way in going into photography and then editing and acting and and then finally becoming a director. Um, and the thing that she said in our interview was quote, the main thing is that it's never too late. So I think the inspiration to, to take from her is that find what you want to make, find your voice, figure out how to work with a lot of different people. And no matter how quote unquote late or how maybe old you are, um, according to Lynn, it's never too late. So just go for it. Yeah. I mean, I, I find that really cool and inspiring that she, uh, she came into it a little older, you know, but I, yeah, I think that she's a, she's, there's a lot about her story that's inspirational because she did it through the indie route. She did it by doing smaller things 
and she found a way to sustain and grow and it was she was doing more and more and uh it's it's just really i i haven't listened to mark Marin's podcast apparently he did something he put something out about her and within the day or so the days following um but it sounds like it's pretty depressing and sad of course so i didn't really want to dive into it but um they were collaborating on other projects and she directed a couple of his stand-up things and it seems like again like this is one of those things where someone was in the middle of creating work and there was like great work to come and that's like from the filmmaking standpoint from an audience standpoint that's always so hard beyond just the human part of it Every death is frustrating and sad, but when you're in mid-career and when when you the heat is building and we want to see more things, uh, and you know that they wanted more to tell more things, uh, that is indeed extra sad. There is no good transition now, so I'm going to do a horrible transition. <laughs> no stream streamlined segue here. <laughs> yeah, I mean you can't. Death is awful. At death. And, you know, just because 90,000 people just died of COVID doesn't mean that this other death isn't, you know, the totality of human experience has to reckon with how awful it is and also move on to other subjects uh, like the new Unreal Engine 5. Unreal Engine, if you guys don't know what Unreal Engine is, it is a video game engine. Video games have engines, like cars have engines. It's what is used to run the video game. And game engines isn't something filmmakers were thinking about five or ten years ago. Um, or maybe let's say 15 to 20 years ago, it was a separate universe. But in the last five to 10 years, we're starting to see more and more game engine applications in filmmaking. The Mandalorian used Unreal Engine, the previous generation Unreal Engine 4. Uh, Cinetracer, which is a tool that if you guys haven't played with, you should all play with. It's a like previs tool that allows you to set up real lighting and real cameras and um, you know get little, you can generate storyboards from it and you can do all sorts of cool stuff with it. It's $80 on the Steam store and it runs on the Unreal Engine. So, you know, it is a, it is a tool that filmmakers are starting to use because uh, it can do real-time rendering, which is super useful for filmmakers of elaborate spaces. And then Joe, do you want to tell us about what's so cool about the newest iteration that just came out this week? Um, it just has so much more rendering power. I, I, the number of triangles that it is able to render live in the new uh, PlayStation is just incredible. Like it stretches to the horizon. The level of detail is amazing. Um, as soon as George sent it to me, I I pulled it up and was messaging him just like amazed at how beautiful and detailed it looked. Um, I got chills at one point. It's just the 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 landscape and the environments are going to be incredible, I think, in this new application of this engine. I find it almost troubling how good it is. I just looked at it when I saw that video get released. I couldn't believe how good it looked. The part like I forget the human face. There's a whole that's a whole other story that we'll deal with some other way, some other time. But the images in that cave, like it was a low light stuff and uh, it was photoreal. I don't know how, how else to put it. And I feel like we say that every time there's a big jump, like we look at something new. And now sometimes the joke is you look at a video game from 10 years ago and you're like, wow, we thought that was like mind blowing. But this really is crazy. And it it just makes me wonder what how it's going to be applied and what it makes possible and what it eliminates. 
I've played video games in the last few years where sometimes I think, God, this is just beautiful. Like it's like this is a beautiful place to look around in and forget the game. This video, this Unreal Engine 5 situation is like a whole is a whole new level of that. Well, it goes back to the Mandotanium that we were talking about a few months ago. If you guys are not daily listeners to the podcast, you don't remember everything we talked about, you know, the Mandalorian. First off, shame on you. But yeah, exactly. (laughs) Come on. Take notes here. There's going to be quizzes. Um, We talked a little while ago, you know, the Mandalorian, phenomenal filmmaking, was on and, you know, using a combination. Unreal was one of the tools they were using to generate these amazing photo real, real time sets that were behind the actors. And what we say by generating in real time, they're not designing the set in real time, right? Like it's a, it's a pre-built, it's a, it's a 3d model, but the real time part of it is you, you know, you can move actors around in it. You can move the camera around in it and it's rendering what all of those different viewpoints and perspectives would look like in real time. And that's what's so impressive and so useful to filmmakers, right? I just take a, I just feel like everyone should just take a moment to let that sink in. If you don't know that that's what's going on when you're watching the Mandalorian, how fucking crazy is that? I mean, to me, that's just crazy. I still, when I think about what that, what is happening there, that like the actor on set can walk and the camera can dolly and the background will move and render in real time so well that you wouldn't know it's not there is just crazy. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. It's baffling that they can do this. And you know, it was a hundred million dollar build to build that in Marina del Rey for Mandalorian. But, you know, the first thing we all thought of when we talked about that is, uh, you know, when is there going to be the indie version? What's the indie version going to be built on? How is it going to work? And, you know, I referenced there, there used to be this place called the um, Entertainium in LA. I think it's gone, which was just like a whole bunch of standing sets. And every indie film ever shot there between like, you know, 2000 and whenever it went out of business. Because like there was a standing, you know, locker room set, doctor's office set. Like there were a bunch of standing sets that you could just get for really cheap. And so like, you know, you're working on a, you're gaffing an indie feature, which I did so much of at, at one point in my life. And you're like, Oh, all right, there's an entertainium day. G and E are going to go to the bar across the street when we wrap. Like, you know, it was just a thing. Um, and so we've been waiting on the mandatanium, the independent version of the uh, Mandalorian set. And you know, the Mandatanium is going to need to have pre-built 3D models, right? You're going to want to show up and you're going to want to flick a switch and have this cave. You're not going to want to have to build your own 3D model because that's actually one of the big expenses. When you look at the big expenses, building all those Star Wars sets and Mandalorian is one of the big expenses. But you're going to want – and, you know, seeing this Unreal 5 – Unreal 5 is definitely – you know, I'm not a gamer enough to know why it's a leap forward, but I'm looking at those videos and I'm like, oh, this is way more impressive than the stuff I was seeing two or three years ago. And you're like, oh, whatever the Mandatanium is, is going to be running Unreal 5. And the hardware got way cheaper because all of the demos were just running on PlayStation 5 systems. And, you know, PlayStation 5, I don't remember the price point, but I think it's like four or 500 bucks. It might be 600 bucks. So, you know, you build a couple really powerful $10,000 graphics machines and you have some LED walls and Unreal 5, you're probably going to be able to do some pretty sophisticated stuff. And, you know, just to bring up Cinetracer again, I mean, it's a tool that's getting a lot of attention right now because, um, you know, it does realistic lighting effects. And so a lot of places, I mean, the film school where I teach is looking at doing some online lessons in it because it's it was built as a previs tool. It was built as a you know, you can move some actors around in a virtual set and you can light them and you can use that for creating your storyboards and your animatics and stuff like that. But 
It's also super fun because you can do a hard light and you can do a soft light and you can see how that changes the mood and you can you can do all that. You know, I, I always try and pitch a variety of business ideas to my students. And like, you know, one thing, I think there's going to be a lot of job opportunities in building the tools that move lights in sync with like on your physical set, like automating the motion of lights triggered by events happening in Unreal. Because like, you know, in this one, there's a cave. Right. And there's a big shaft of light coming from above in the cave. So if you were at a mandatanium, you'd want to rig a light up above, but then you'd want to move that light in sync with camera movements in the game. And, uh, you know, the people who can really work out the like DMX mover interface with Unreal, I think that's going to be a, a big thing coming because Unreal 5 is like super impressive. Are they using the Unreal 5 or will we use, will anybody use the Unreal 5 engine for VR? Is there, is that, part of the unreal engine like virtual reality is that still a thing do people still do that it came you know what it's a great question it uh yeah i know a guy i know a guy who bought some of that stuff and does it all the time i think that it was not and then part of the covid impact with folks were folks buying those um and then oh i've God, seen them been come a out VR as boom? social yeah well i wouldn't call it a boom I think people are interested. They're like, well, I'm stuck here. Where can I go? And can I get there electronically? And the answer is maybe. I've seen some people also starting to talk more about it in the social media worlds. But yeah, I I, I kind of agree. I kind of had thought it was like a thing people weren't investing in. But I wonder now. I do. The world is turning inside so much. The problem with Unreal Engine with VR is that you know, we're seeing these amazing images in this video we're watching and no VR viewer that I've yet seen has anywhere near the resolution to actually show anything that's going to look this good on the VR viewer itself. So mm. you're going to run. Interesting. Yeah. I was actually literally just this morning watching a tutorial on CineTracer where they, uh, they've set up CineTracer where you can use VR handles as a virtual camera. You don't use the helmet. You just use the handles as a virtual camera so you can move your virtual camera like you could do handheld shots in CineTracer in Unreal Engine using like an HTC Vive Pro, but you don't use the helmet. So like they're like, you can buy a setup, but you don't even use the helmet. You just use the handles. So, you know, people are using parts of VR. Yeah, we've talked about this though before because I was talking about the VR component to the creation of the live action quote unquote Lion King. Because I spoke to Caleb Deschanel for NoFilmSchool.com and he was telling us, I shit threw in the .com there. That was really sad. But he was telling us that they, you know, the whole process was like they got their VR headsets, they showed up, he and Favreau, and Favreau obviously is also on Mandalorian, so he seems to be the guy that Disney likes for these things. But they were were manipulating the camera within the pre-rendered VR space, right, That, that, that had been built. That's, I think, also an application of it is like putting the cinematographer or the director in the world and then having them move around and and look at things and try things and all of that. I agree. So I think I think Unreal 5 is big news. All right. In other big news, also a second tech story this week, we have ProRes Raw coming to Premiere, actually beating an implementation Avid's implementation of ProRes RAW, which was supposed to be out last year, was announced last year and is still not here. But before we get to anything else, what is ProRes RAW and why do we care? So 
ProRes is an intermediate codec that, you know, usually whatever format you shoot in camera is sort of an annoying asset to deal with in post. If you shoot like H.265, you don't want to edit H.265. Your computer's going to stutter and slow down. Although weirdly, the new 13-inch MacBook Pro really handled it well. But most of us don't have a brand new computer. And so you usually transcode to something like ProRes. It's robust. It's designed for editing. It doesn't choke your processor. It's a, a great format. Apple invented something called ProRes RAW. They rolled it out, was it two NAPs ago or three NAPs ago? Time really blurs together in quarantine where everything feels like an infinity away. And um, ProRes RAW is a RAW format, but it's ProRes. So the thing to know about this is most RAW formats are proprietary to a company. Canon has Canon RAW, Red has Red RAW, Airy has Airy RAW. ProRes RAW was designed to be like an open RAW format, like anybody could shoot to it. So, you know, we're going to probably see more various cameras shooting to ProRes RAW right now the, in the near future. The main way you would shoot ProRes RAW right now is you'd use a small camera like a Nikon, I think Z6 will use it, and the EVA1 will do it. And then you'll record the RAW to something like an Atomos. You know, the Atomos Shogun does ProRes RAW, the Ninja does ProRes RAW. So it's a way for all these other companies like Nikon and Panasonic that don't have their own RAW format instead of developing their own raw format to work with a common raw format that's going to be open they don't you know cuz when red does red raw they have to write application support for all these applications and they always have to make it work if you're panasonic do you want to worry about that or do you just want to make cool cameras and then let apple worry about prores raw's imp- uh, integration so for the first couple of years it was out it only worked in final cut pro and Final Cut Pro, Final Cut 10 has taken off. It's popular. It's not as hated as it was five or six years ago. You're seeing real work in it, but it is only one of the major NLEs. And we finally have started to see ProRes RAW getting supported in other applications. Avid announced that they were going to be supporting it last year. That support has not come out yet, but they announced they were doing it. And then uh, Premiere just jumped them and is like, yeah, we're doing it. You can download it really soon. It's happening. So you can do ProRes RAW in... Premiere, and I'm going to say more importantly in After Effects. So why more importantly? Well, Premiere is an editing platform. The benefits of RAW are things like color grading, color manipulation, shooting in a RAW format. You usually have a little bit more room. If the white balance was off on set and it's baked into the shot, it's not a RAW shot, it's a video shot, you can't push it as far, but you can certainly push it further with RAW. And we actually did some tests. The article is up on http colon slash slash www.nofilmschool.com slash and you can take a look there and we have a ProRes RAW as a legit improvement like we shot some stuff normal ProRes 444 and ProRes RAW same setups same camera settings and like you can really push the ProRes RAW much further in post you can really recover more stuff so why do I think that's more important than After Effects than I do in Premiere well I mean, I still refuse to color grade in Premiere. I just won't do it. I color grade in a real color grading application, and I find col- uh, result, uh, the tools for color. Not resolve or yes resolve? Yes resolve. I do everything in resolve. Base light is also great. New Coda is great. Scratch is great, although the interface is wonk. I just won't color in Premiere. I just won't do it. Um, so it's nice that ProRes Raw is supported in Premiere because if you have a really powerful workstation, there's these workflows starting to come out called always online where you never transcode. You take straight whatever's out of the camera, you edit it and you finish it. And so the ability to take that ProRes raw straight out of the camera, pop it into premiere, edit it, take it into resolve to color create it and then export it. And you're set. Um, I'm more interested in native ProRes raw support for after effects because one little sneaky thing about VFX workflows 
is a lot of times if, you know, After Effects supports a lot of different RAW formats, but if it doesn't support the RAW format you're using, like I remember way back before you could take an R3D into After Effects, you know, we'd have an R3D and we'd have to like make sure all the color settings were right. And then we'd have to transcode it to DPX or ProRes 444 or something it would take. But you're always baking in, you're always getting rid of some of your flexibility when you do that. Once you've transcoded a raw into another format, you're always locking some decisions in. And sometimes when you're in effects, you want to tweak something. Sometimes you're doing a motion graphic, you're doing a composite, and you're like, oh, I wish I'd made this a little cooler or a little warmer. Or I wish I had more contrast or I want to see what's in the shadow there. And the ability to do that on a raw footage is going to give artists more flexibility. I don't think you're going to see this at the top end. The top end still want ungraded DPX files or the default for VFX artists. But I think at a lot of smaller shops, a lot of fast turnaround shops, a lot of like, you know, uh, what do they call it? Digital media content creators who are like out there and they're shooting an EVA one to ProRes Raw. The fact that they're going to slap that straight into Premiere and do an edit, use Dynamic Link to put that same ProRes Raw shot over into After Effects. And then when they're doing their composite in After Effects, have access to all that raw data. I think that's going to be really useful and interesting. So I'm really excited. This leaves... Black Magic is the only people out not supporting ProRes Raw, which is interesting because uh, really soon after ProRes Raw came out, they came out with Black Magic Raw. But, Don't, yeah, I was going to say they have their own codec. But it's only created right now by Black Magic cameras. And so and there's some backstory with Atomos and Black Magic we won't go into here. And Atomos is one of the big people really pushing ProRes Raw. But I think that. I think they're not rushing. I think they will do it because they have to do it because that's black magic. Yeah, black magic will do it because that's, I mean, at this point, Apple's open. If Apple is letting Adobe and Avid do it, Apple will let black magic do it. Apple and black magic work on stuff all the time together. They're very collaborative. I think that black magic, I'm not going to say dragging their feet because they also rolled out an update this week and they roll out a lot of updates. I just think they'll get to it. It's on their lists. How much does it make? Does it change? Like a choice in a purchase of a camera with Blackmagic when you're seeing that you're going to be able to go from ProRes RAW right through your post-production process and workflow, does it alter, you think, the decision for people who are doing it all themselves, the one-horse bands? Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of one-mule teams, one-horse bands... (laughs) I like one horse band. That's going to be my version of one mule team. <laughs> really? Cause I was about to switch to one, mo- one monster mashes. The one monster mashes <laughs> oh, out one. there. I think those folks tend to lock into an ecosystem. Like you're going to see folks who are like, I'm going to buy a black magic camera and I'm going to cut and resolve and I'm going to do the whole thing. And at that point, those folks are happy with black magic raw. Um, I think you're going to see a lot of folks who've like gotten an EVA one or a Z six or any of the little cameras that are now, and there's another, Oh, the S one H is the other one that's going to do ProRes raw over HDMI. Um, and I think you're going to see a lot of those folks where the camera choice is really driven by the image quality and they're excited. It's going to shoot to a pro format and then they're going to figure out their post workflow based on what supports the raw format they have. So I think you're going to see a lot of that. So I think that, I think that Blackmagic will eventually, if ProRes Raw takes off a little more, I mean, frankly, I still haven't done a job in it. You know what I mean? It's been out three years. I've done a lot of testing with it. I've done a lot of like, ooh, I want to play with this. I'll get my hands on EVA1 and I'll do a review and whatever. But like, I still haven't had a job where it's come up. I think Blackmagic will support it just because they want people to feel, they want even all the people buying S1Hs to be using Resolve for all of their posts. So I think that they will support it probably relatively soon. 
is my guess. All right. Up next, our final subject this week. Deep cuts. <laughs> I'll start. My deep cut this week, Obvious Child by Gillian Robespierre. It's only six years old, so it's not that deep yes. of a deep cut. But I wanted to shout it out because I remember one day uh, – we were in uh, when I had a production company. We were talking about like ideas for projects we wanted to do, and I tried to pitch an abortion comedy because I was like, you know, a third of the women I know of. I mean, literally, a third of the women I know of had abortions. Like maybe that's like an aspect of living in California or whatever. And every fucking movie, everyone who had an abortion committed suicide. Even movies I liked, like Ides of March, abortion, suicide, like so it was just this insane trope of all the movies I saw where I was like, How come everybody who has an abortion in a movie dies by suicide? Like like I don't know anyone who's like I know people who've committed suicide and women who've had abortions, but I don't know anybody who had an abortion and killed themselves. I know many people who had like abortions and then went on to live their life. And it was difficult and complicated, but it wasn't like the end of their life. And it was, you know, Ides of March, otherwise great movie, but abortion uh, character, suicide. Like, it's just this trope that was very frustrating for me. And we had a long conversation at the uh, production company where I worked where, A, I wasn't the person to make that movie. And they were correct. Um, and, you know, it was it was an interesting conversation. And then a couple of years later, Obvious Child came out. And I was like, ooh, yes, this is what I meant. I just wanted to see a movie in which it was possible to imagine a universe in which a character manages to have an abortion and it does not ruin their life. And, you know, it is a movie where they take it seriously and it's not light and it's not like it's a real decision that is difficult to make, but it is also a fully grown character and Jenny Slate is great in it and the handsome guy is handsome in it, but also very good. And, um, obviously it's really good. My pick is your sister's sister. I'm just going to go stay with Lynn. Um, I rewatched that yesterday and it is just it is a perfect little sort of anti-rom-com um very contained movie basic plot is just mark duplass plays this guy who is kind of in mourning after the death of his brother um falls into bed with a woman um who happens to be emily blunt his best friend's sister played by rosemary dewitt i don't know if that's a little backwards but um It's just this, it's a comedy about relationships and how sloppy they can be. And it's just a very lived in film, very real grounded. I think it's quintessential Lynn because everybody just feels really real and raw and, and it's really funny at the same time. So that one's mine. So some potentially breaking news actually that we're getting up on no film school there. Steven Soderbergh uh, apparently has written a sequel to sex lies and videotape in quarantine that he wants to direct. So that's weird. (laughs) And my joke, uh, because I think that, you know, it's no film school and this should probably be our headline for the story is sex lies and pro res raw should be the title for the sequel. It makes me think about the original. I feel like sex lies and videotape gets a little overshadowed by a couple things. One Soderbergh has had such an incredible varied career. I love him as a filmmaker and he's a really nice person the only the few times I've interacted with him but the he he's so interested in doing different things and trying different things and introducing new filmmakers and te- and technique but uh Sex Lies and Videotape was his first and it like 
blew him up. It blew up indie filmmaking in the 90s. It changed the direction of cinema for a while. It really opened the door for like the Tarantinos and the Coen brothers and the whole like 90s indie thing that I think for people, for people like me really informed uh, what movies could be. I'm not saying movies always are that, but it certainly gave me an idea of what movies could be and excited me about movies and movie making. And that movie is, you know, Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs just loom so large when you think about that era of, of filmmaking. But, um, but that's the one, really, that kind of kickstarted the whole thing. And it's an interesting movie. It's weird. And it plays with medium and it plays with voyeurism and it plays with perspective. And, it, and it's, uh, it's so Gen X, too. Like... Um, but I'm curious, I mean, curious, morbidly curious, maybe what the sequel is going to be, but if Soderbergh wants to do it, I'm sure he has a fun plan and it probably does involve pro res raw or at least a bunch of iPhones. Um, or a video cam. We are in zoom. So sex lies in video cameras. Yeah. It could be sex lies in zoom. Who knows? He wrote it in quarantine, but anyway, really weird. Um, but a movie worth for those of you who are not familiar with it, um, it's definitely worth watching because sometimes I just feel like the way movies were made in that era, like starting there and, and for a while, is sort of a forgotten thing. Like you, you used to be able to be a lot more weird with it. And to her credit, Lynn Shelton, coming back to, to Lynn Shelton again, she was that kind of filmmaker. Um, even in this time where making those kinds of movies is not the easy way. And not the not the way, not the uh, path more traveled, <laughs> as opposed to the path less traveled. Anyway, someone someone else take over. I I will take over for the last deep cut, which is not necessarily a deep cut, but more of a deep activity. If you feel like you and you're diving <laughs> deep, so if you feel like you've if you finish Netflix, which I've seen posted a couple of times that there's nothing else to watch on some of these platforms, uh, you can do what I did, which is what I tried to do anyway while watching the pilot of Snowpiercer, which is mapping out the elements to make a good pilot. And so it's one framework of a way to jump back in or to jump into something that you're interested in watching is just kind of figure out where the elements are, where the potential flip or change or question is in the pilot and see how that goes. I tried that yesterday. It was kind of a fun viewing experiment. So if you feel like you've finished Netflix or you want to dive back into something, um, diving in with the lens of kind of mapping it out and maybe applying that kind of framework to your own work might be helpful. So that's my deep cut, deep activity, if you will. Uh, for looking at stuff in a new way if you're going back in or to viewing new stuff if you're curious about how that works or curious about how the elements come together or where things lie, just try it out. Since we're on this topic, it just popped into my head and I really wanted to throw it out there because we put something up on social media about the Breaking Bad pilot script and it got a lot of comments and discussion because the prompt I put along with it was, this is like one of the great pilots, really. And what's the best pilot of all time? And I just like lightning round. I want to know everybody's like, like if you're, if you're going to study a pilot, because I think what you're saying, Michelle, is a great idea, which is I used to do it with features where I would actually look at where it was in the timeline, in the runtime, because that could kind of give you a correlation to like how many pages in it, it should be theoretically. But 
Um, yeah, best pilot of all time. Charles. Oh my god, deep cut Go. speed round. All right, uh, Mad Men, no question. Not the best TV show of all the time. Best pilot. Uh, same caveat for me. Um, Lost, I think, is a perfect pilot, oh, yeah. but not a per- not a perfect show. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one, though. I'm going really short. Like, I think The Good Place, maybe in terms of the last couple of years, mostly because I'm mostly impressed about what they can do in 27 minutes or less. Huh. I have always felt that the Friday Night Lights pilot oh is like God. an excellent, um, excellent pilot, and. Again, I wouldn't say it's the greatest show ever. I actually think Mad Men is is pretty high up there. Mad Men's in my top five. It's just not as good as The Wire overall. It's definitely a top five show. But that pilot, it, with the with when he gets home at the end, it's just uh, I know. No, you're it's, just it's, like, there's no, oh my god. I know that exact feeling of like, wait, what? <laughs> but I felt that way in Friday Night Lights too. I did not see it coming, and. Once it happens and it leaves, it left me with that feeling that I think every executive wants when you pitch them a show and you talk about a pilot. This pilot showed you the show. It's the world that was turns into the world that you're going to watch. Like it's a joint where something changes. Like Michelle, you've said a turn, but like it presents us with this world and then it says, boom, it's upside down. And now you've got a show. And I just, I feel like that pilot really did the rope-a-dope on me. Like it lulled me into a false state of calm. It was like football, okay, high school, got it. Yeah, okay, what's the deal here? Like, why am I watching? And then boom, like then it was this show that uh, was, was, so for me, I always think of that one, but I love thinking about what makes a great pilot because TV really is like, it's a great place for writers to, for everybody, but it's a great place for writers to explore right now, so. I'm also, if you're really diving into TV pilots, this is less a writing thing than a directing thing. I keep meaning to write a post about this. The original pilot for 30 Rock is available on the internet. They reshot about half of it to be the pilot you can see on Netflix today. That is a class in execution. Because they changed like they changed some of the script, but they also recast some of the parts. And it is such a great, like... If you are looking at like what makes writing good and what launches a show and like, you know, the first pilot they shot and then luckily an executive was like, this isn't good enough, but I think there is still something here I want to keep exploring. (laughs) You should really, it's, it's fascinating to watch the two back to back. I think you learn a lot about like how important detail work is, how precise casting has to be, all of those things. I also think the same thing happened in Game of Thrones, but I don't know if the original pilot has made it to the internet. All right, with that, it is time to plug your pluggables. I'm Charles Hain. I'm available on the internet at Charles Hain on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, I don't insty or tweet much, but if you follow me like once every three months, I will post something. Um, I also have a web series out now called Salty Pirate. You can learn more and see the trailer at saltypirate.tv. Uh, it's available on Ficto and Vimeo VOD, and it is coming soon to Amazon Prime. This is Michelle De La Tour. You can find me on the internet at M De La Tour, M-D-E-L-A-T-E-U-R. Thank you to Lynn Shelton for her work. Thank you, Joe, for hopping on and sharing more about her, her work and her impact. And we're thinking of all of you, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Yeah, this is Joe Light. I'm at Joe underscore Lightly on Twitter, and I can be found on No Film School. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. Thanks again to Joe for stopping by and talking to us about 
a few of the many things she writes on NoFilmSchool.com. She's been pretty prolific and she's done a lot of great stuff. We have a lot up on No Film School as usual. I'm pretty excited about a few things. One is we have a big piece about the value of embracing 8K as a format. It comes from Darren James. Um, and it's it's an interesting, lengthy opinion piece just about 8K and about the community's reaction to it and the future of resolution and, and resolution discussions and online debates. We also, of course, have How to Write a Screenplay During Quarantine, which is our free 100-page ebook all about screenwriting from Jason Hellerman. It is full of infographics and tips and tricks and ways to get you writing and finishing your scripts. We'll have other great stuff on the podcast as well. And rate, like, subscribe, comment, and thanks for listening.